0: Oh, like you want me to give you my whole Yeah, show? yeah, yeah. Step up, step over, step in, get ready to play, get ready to win, come give it a try, come stay, come play, come take a prize away, come on in guys, don't be shy, don't just walk on by, come give it a try guys, come on in, come on in, come on in, and it's just that whole thing over and over and over again, and that's like every day I can do that and text and listen to music all at the same time and think, and it's sad because I've said it for so long now that I'm practically able to mix match it, bring it just about whatever way
1: You're listening to Coney Island Stories, the oral history podcast from the Coney Island History Project.
2: I'm Charles Denson, director of the Coney Island History Project. Welcome to Episode 7 of Coney Island Stories. 21 years ago, when I was writing my book, Coney Island Lost and Found, the amusement area still had a fair number of independently owned games operated by old-timers. Eighty-four-year-old Phil Forletta was once the grand old man of Jones Walk, a narrow, block-long alley connecting Surf Avenue to the boardwalk. He told me he'd started working in Coney Island in 1939 when he was 12 years old for his Aunt Dora at the High Striker behind Nathan's. His amusement empire grew to 14 stalls along Jones Walk, but by 2000 he had kept just one, a basket toss, just to stay in the game, he told me in his gravelly voice. Then he pointed up the walk and reminisced. The changes I've seen around here are out of this world, he said. In the old days, at every stand, I'd have 30 or 40 people at this hour. It was an addicting lifestyle, and Phil worked on Jones walk until his final days. Today, we share the stories of Coney Island game operators, past and present, taken from the Coney Island History Project's Oral History Archive. Spill the Milk, Cat Rack, Coke Toss, and Diamond Nickel Pitches are some of the long-vanished games I remember seeing while growing up in Coney Island in the 1950s and 60s. There were also three Fascination arcades, Fabers, Moe's, and Eddie's Five Star Final. My mother was a big fan of Fascination. After work, she'd get off the train at the Stillwell Terminal, walk across the street, and relax with a few games before heading home. In this 2009 oral history, Peter Agrippides, the longtime owner of Williams Candy and Pete's Clam Stop, recalls working at Eddie's Fascination in the 1950s and years later becoming the owner.
3: In 1951, 52, was, I received a job in Fascination, which was located on the corner where Nathan's is right now. Part of it was Nathan's, the corner was the Fascination. It was called Eddie's Fascination. I went to the service. I was in Korea for sixteen months. When we came back, my family bought Fascination, and we ran it from 1963 to 1978. And things did not. We were doing very well in the beginning, but later on, the, I, other games came into power, like bingos, uh, uh, OTBs, uh, things. People weren't interested in Fascination. Can you describe what Fascination? Fascination was? is what they call a. Uh, five-star final you have to make five lights in any straight line vertically diagonally or horizontally the rolling balls We're rolling the ball it's, it was a competitive game and whoever made the first line correctly his table will stay lit the other tables will go out and he would declare the winner and then well, this will continue every minute we had a winner 52 tables and uh, in good times most of the tables were always full.
2: What were your hours over there?
3: When I first took over, the hours were, you know, it was summer hours, they used to open up at three o'clock in the afternoon, it closed three, two, three in the morning. At that time, there was a law, you have to close at three o'clock in the morning. Later on, the law was expired. Nobody closed at three in the morning. We stayed as long as we liked. When I took it over, not only became a summer business, an all year round business, we decided to keep it open only in the winter time. In the winter time, before us, it used to be only our Saturdays or Sundays. But I kept it over and it was successful.
2: I remember it well.
3: Yeah, you remember what kind it? of prizes did you have? Over
2: yeah. the years, it changed. We, well,
3: we gave away specials, we gave away uh, <laughs> bonuses, we gave away mostly souvenirs, housewares, hardware, uh, uh, everything blankets, uh, sheets, pillowcases, everything. We had everything as prizes. You accumulate your coupons, you buy your prizes.
2: So
3: we asked, But the main uh, item was cigarettes. Well, back 40 years, uh, this, we used to give five packs of cigarettes for one coupon, which the value was uh, approximately $1. And uh, they used to take the cigarettes, right from five, and they used to take them to the cigar places and sell them. We couldn't give money away, but we used to give coupons, but they found ways to to accumulate money out of the cigarettes.
2: Ways
3: to cash in. Yeah, to cash in. And uh, incidentally, we were the... There used to be four games, three games, Fascination plus the races. And uh, Moles went out first, then Weber's Fascination went out, and we were the last ones to go.
2: Did you own, like, the license for it? Everything, of
3: course. Consumer Affairs used to be examined constantly. Used to come inside, check us out, make sure we have our license. Not only do the store have license, Every person I worked there, in order to work there, you have to have a consumer affairs license, which was the, They all, all the kids were licensed. Uh, then days of 14, 15 years old, I don't know if they still have it now, but they uh, had to have working papers for the summer if you were underage. And uh, all, everything was run legally, there was no, uh, no problems. But like I said, uh, people, when they wanted cigarettes, they used to go to candy stores and all over the place. There's a lot of candy stores, a lot of cigarette places. They used to sell cigarettes for. Uh, return the cigarettes for money and they used to give them to them cheaper than they used to buy from the wholesalers. Fascination also hit well on Broadway. They had two fascinations up there, they did terrifically. There was other fascinations on Rockaway. They went out first, but Broadway lasted for another year or two after us, but they went out also.
2: Today, there are only a handful of places in America where you can play fascination. One is a fascination parlor that moved in 1945 from Coney Island to Nantasket Beach in Massachusetts. Its owners boast that it's the only game in the country that pays cash prizes to players on each contest. Meanwhile, in Coney Island, the variety of games and the number of independent game operators have dwindled. Old-timers like Stewie of One In Wins, Jimmy Balloons and Looch of Bust'Em Up, recently passed away. The tradition of family-owned game operations depends on everyone pitching in and the next generation staying with it and for it. This is still prevalent on the road, but increasingly rare in Coney Island. In this oral history recorded in September 2016, Candy Raphael talks about growing up working her father's games on the Bowery. It would be her last season in Coney Island. Cesar Raphael, who managed and operated amusements here for 37 years, passed away in early 2017, and the family's game business never reopened.
0: Well, I grew up here from, I want to say, the age of one till, you know, like my whole life, basically. I'm going to be 22 years old, well, later this month. And um, I just grew up on the borrowing doing what most people do out here which is work yourself to death practically but it's I have to say made me a better person at least (laughs) how has it made you a better person because it taught me you know hard work and creativity and all that stuff on how to actually you know accomplish things that you want to do if you want something out here you have to work for it and you have to work for it hard and honestly I have to say that's made me a better person right now so what games do you primarily operate? Oh Well, um, water race games, which could be the balloon pop game or what we had was the Bart Simpson game. I've also worked in a basketball a game, a BB gun game, football game. I've worked in, um, you know, the milk toss game where you have to throw the ball at the bottles, and knock do. them over. I do. That's I've a had to work one. one of them. <laughs> How old were you when you first operated a game? I want to say about eight. <laughs> Which game was that? I believe the game that I was working in was a water race game. When my dad originally got it, it had the Bart Simpson hookup. And I used to talk on the microphone. And I actually had a speech impediment for a long time. <laughs> and um, the, I went to the school and they were like, you know what? That's actually probably a really good way for me to learn how to speak better. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I was terribly shy as a kid. I'm still, you know, shy at times, but I can work my game at least, you know? What kind of things were you saying on the mic at eight? Oh, like you want me giving give you my whole Yeah, field? yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> step up step over step in get ready to play get ready to win come give it a try come stay come play come take a prize away come on in guys don't be shy don't just walk on by come give it a try guys come on in come on in come on in. and it's just the whole thing over and over and over again and that's like every day i can do that and text and listen to music all at the same time and think and it's sad because i've said it for so long now that I'm practically able to mix match it, bring it just about every way.
1: <laughs> and that's amazing that you got over a childhood speech impediment by that. Yeah. Do, uh, when you're on the mic, do you do you call refer to yourself as a talker? Um, there's a bit of a discussion as to whether it's a barker or a talker.
0: Honestly, it depends on like how how you view it. If somebody's just using a general sale, whatever to get people in, that's more of a barker than. Honestly, I consider myself a Coney Island original Carney. That's just how it is though, you know?
1: A Coney Island original Carney. Yeah. What are your favorite things about working on the Bowery?
0: My favorite things I have to say is probably the people. You know, obviously there's a lot of really jerky people, like really, really jerky people. But then it's those people who make your day like um, when little kids come to my game. That's one of my favorite things because their eyes light up and then they're just having so much fun. And it just reminds me of me when I grew up, you know, getting to go to all the different games and find a stuffed animal and fall in love. I still collect stuffed animals to this day because me growing up out here is such a great memory for me.
1: As a kid working here, did you think it was really cool? What was your impression of it?
0: Um, My impression of it was more of, okay, I'm making some money. My dad's going to give it to me later. I'm going to get to go to the toy store. Yeah. What about at 16 working till 3 a.m.? Oh, 16 working at 3 a.m.? That's extra cash in my pocket. And uh, my dad obviously bought a lot of my stuff, but it's having my own money in my pocket and knowing I'm helping my family and making sure that, you know, This is a family thing, and being in my community, that's what matters to me most, you know? Kept me out of trouble. Kept me out of trouble for the most part. (laughs) So um,
1: what is it like as a young female running a game?
0: Um, It can have mixed effects, depending on the crowd you have. Sometimes you have, you know, people who feel very entitled, like they can boss me around just because they come to my game and demand whatever they want. But then you have people who are like kids that are just there for fun. And then you have people who just want to hit on you and make you feel completely uncomfortable at the workplace, which is honestly very, makes me very pissed off. And I'll call somebody out on the mic because of it. Lucky for me, my father, he hires a lot of um, lesbian women to work his games. And honestly, seeing growing up with them gave me, you know, somebody to look up to people who were, strong or you know that, that they could hold their own especially steadily women they're very attractive so <laughs> it's it's honestly it's a good experience because it's like so many people out here they won't give women the chance to work anything that involves handiwork yeah it's it's been a you know positive experience me growing up here it made me like i said a stronger person
2: Many of the stories we've recorded about growing up in Coney Island include the teenage rite of passage of a first job working in the amusement area. For some of us, it was when we turned 14 and could get our working papers. After working on the Bowery, most of my childhood friends went on to other things, but one wound up doing the Coney-Carney routine for 25 years, working long summer hours and collecting unemployment all winter. It was in his blood. Some neighborhood kids started even younger. In this 2017 oral history, Elliot Woofsey, whose family lived across from the amusement area and the Luna Park houses, recalls his first job as an 8-year-old balloon boy. He got the job in the 1960s by hanging out at the game where his older brothers worked, and by the time he was 14, he had become a successful game agent.
4: I enjoyed watching my... My brother's um, work, and it was interesting, and de- dealing with people and having people have fun, you know. And eventually, I don't know, it was mid 60s, I started working with them a little bit. And how I started was uh, this guy, Al, owned a Greyhound game and a Bloom game my brothers worked in the balloon game. And I would go into the back of the balloon game, and they would have me blow up the balloons by mouth. There were no machines in those days to blow up the balloons. And I spent the whole day blowing up the balloons. You know? And they would pay me. And in those days, I got good money. Because in those days, you're lucky if you got paid 50 cents an hour. I was getting paid almost $2 an hour. So they were, you know, um, paying me to blow up these balloons in the back of the house. Because at my age, which was about eight years old at the time, you couldn't be in the front of the house. It was not not good, you know. But uh, I loved that, you know. And then as I started growing up, <clears throat> I was able to go in front And kind of, like, if they took a break, they would let me not run the game, but be part of the game, you know. And then eventually, I started working for Mike Jacobs. And at first, I did the stock in the back with all the plush, all the stuffed animals and stuff. And I would um, go to all the games and replenish the games. And as I was doing that, I was watching all the old-timers, including my brother, who started working for Mike Jacobs at the time. And I kept on watching him, and eventually Mike Jacobs decided that I was old enough to try to go into the game, which I was at about 14 at the time, when I actually went into the games and and ran the games and did that myself, just like the other carnies. And... uh and then I was making, uh, I think when I started yeah, making about $10 an hour, which was very good in those days. But most cornies made commission, you know, 30, 40% of whatever they took in. But I was young. So that's how they started me. And then eventually I got so good and I learned how to run the game so well that I was able to command what I wanted to get and eventually I was getting 40 or 50% of whatever I took in. And it was really interesting how to, you had to um, relate to people who were almost like a psychologist because you had to learn how to work with people and get them to play and have them feel positive about what they were playing for and whether it was for their girlfriend, for their child, for their wife, for themselves.
3: Can you give me the spiel?
4: Can I give you the spiel? Well, um, I can, you know, I, I can tell you that, like, when I was working the fishbowl game in the end, you know, I would call in someone, I would say, um, a bucket of 55 balls for $5, get as many as you want in, You even as many fish as you want, you know? And when they heard 55 balls for $5, they were like, wow, that's a lot of balls. So they would come and play. I wouldn't say a bucket of balls, because if you said a bucket of balls, it didn't sound as good.
3: When did you decide to uh, to close up?
4: Well, <clears throat> In 2011, I was given the opportunity to rent it for the next year again, which would have been 2012. But I wanted a lot more money for the rent. And I just couldn't see myself being that positive role model of renting the game out for top dollar, paying the the workers, including my children, a decent wage so they can afford things. So I decided against it. And I haven't gone back because it's even gotten worse. Because you have corporations that are, are running the businesses in Coney Island today. And they're asking for top dollar to sublease their businesses because they want to make as much money as they can. But Coney Island isn't sustainable that way because Coney Island was always a people's playground. It was always the opportunity that the regular guy on the street can come there and have fun. And it's beginning to get hard to do that.
2: In the years leading up to and following the 2009 rezoning of Coney Island, real estate speculation and changes in property ownership led to soaring rents and fewer locations for game operators. The shootout, the star, basketball, and balloon games began disappearing from Coney's main streets, replaced by vacant lots and new construction for retail. The last of the independent game operators are now concentrated on a small strip of Coney Island's eclectic Bowery, once the boisterous home of hundreds of unusual games and other attractions. Monica G, whose hammer smash and archery games are located on the Bowery at Jones Walk, in a spot leased from Dino's Wonder Wheel amusement park, is one of a handful of independents who have survived. In this 2019 oral history, Monica describes the various games she's worked in Coney Island over the past 50 years and how she got into the game business.
5: What other games have you had in Coney Island over the years? Oh my God. Where do I start? We've had goldfish bowls that give out goldfish. Real goldfish. But we don't do that anymore per se because people are too busy to take care of them. We closed that up years ago. And uh, we've had the high striker up. That's the strongman game. We added one for the women, one for the children. We've had the glass pitches over the years where they throw the dimes at the glass and they win certain pieces of glass. I forgot to mention my most famous game, by the way, is my duck game. It's animated. It's a five foot by five foot board that we built with ducks all over the board and they move. I'm sorry, the heads move and they wobble and wibble and the people are throwing rings. And just when you think you're going to get it on the head might or might not move. It's amazing. The kids love it because we animated it to talk and call them in by name. If they hear a mother call a child by name, it will call the child back to play the game by name. It's amazing. When did you start working here? On and off for 52 years, believe it or not. I've did almost everything you can imagine, except I never ran rides. I I never ran any rides for anybody. It's not my thing. My grandmother used to travel when she was young on the road. She stopped when she had my mom for a while. And then uh, when I came along, my grandmother wanted to show me the road. So she used to take me every summer to some unknown destination. She used to make cotton candy, my grandma, and jelly apples, that was her thing. I said, I can't do that. But I was very savvy with games. That was my my true calling is that I was very savvy knowing how to take any kind of game and make money out of anything. It didn't have to be fancy. So we'll ask you about another game, which I guess is your signature game, The High Striker. Um, If you could tell us a little bit about that game and what it was like to work. That was a lot of fun because the minute men would pass it, they would have to come in and prove their virility to me. I was just a woman standing there a little bit younger than I am now, but uh, a tiny woman calling men in to be strong appealed to everybody. They all had to come in and show me that they could, you know, come close or ring the bell. Mm -hmm. It was 17 feet in the air. And then we added one 14 feet for women, which was not successful at first. Women had nothing to prove to us. Do you have any plans to revive it or to bring it back? If I get a lease, it would definitely come back out. It's here. Mm -hmm. It's here in Coney Island. It's in somebody's basement. Sounded secure. Mm -hmm. Locked up good but uh, we're dreaming about the day to bring it out.
2: Thank you for listening to Coney Island Stories, the Coney Island History Project podcast. This episode was produced by Charles Denson, Ali Lemer, and Trisha Vita. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. The oral histories were conducted by Cara Baptiste, Charles Denson, Amanda Deutsch, and Mark Markov between 2009 and 2019. You can listen to the full interviews featured in this podcast in our oral history archive at ConeyIslandHistory.org. If you have a question or would like to record an oral history, contact us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our website. Stay tuned for the next episode of Coney Island Stories.
1: This program is supported in part by funding from Humanities New York provided by the CARES Act and the National Endowment for the Humanities and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and New York City Councilman Mark Traeger.